Welcome to Unexpected Turns. If you're at a race in Italy and like the peloton screaming down a descent or through a town and roundabouts, like you have to hold that line. If you're not, like you're going to be shot out the back and you're never going to catch back on. And yeah, you're going to get back to the team bus and feel like an idiot because it wasn't even you had 200 other riders that were willing to do it without without thinking twice. Hello, I'm Anne Dibbon, and this is Unexpected Turns, where along with my co-hosts, Beverly and Julie, we get to talk to some pretty extraordinary people whose lives have taken an unexpected turn. Today, Beverly and I talk to Ian Boswell, a former teammate and close friend of my son, Jonathan Dibbon. So as poor Julie, our other co-host, has to work today, remember what that was, Beth? <laughs> We've managed to rope in Jonathan Dibbon. Welcome, Jonathan. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Letting me join your up and coming podcast. Hi, John. Hello. How are you, my darling? Good. How are you? Oh, good, good. You look really well. Yeah, I'm good. And congratulations, by the way. Thank you very much. I can't believe that little boy engaged. Oh, my word. Yeah. That's and such a beautiful ring. Oh, good. I'll tell her. Yeah. Oh. You know Ian really well, Jonathan. So could you give us a little bit of a summary of his, of his career? So as we I've done a couple of podcasts with cyclists, and what you do, even if you know them well, is you just go on to Pro Cycling Stats and have a look at their top results. That's always the best way. So yeah, Boswell, he was pro for almost a decade, really, rode for Team Sky and Team Katusha, but obviously really one of the biggest teams in cycling with Team Sky, rode the Tour de France, was top five at his home race, the Tour of California, one of the biggest races in the world, and was part of the team that won a team time trial stage at the Vuelta. A lot of top results. He was third at another home race for him, the Tour of the Utah, all the way back in 2010. So really good rider, really experienced. And yeah, I was good friends with him when we were teammates and kept in touch since. So I'm looking forward to having a catch up. He lived down there, didn't he? He lived with you there in Nice at the time, didn't he? Yeah. So I, I first met Boz end of 2016. So I joined Sky in end of 2016. And Bosworth had been there since 2013. And so we were teammates. Um, and obviously he lived in Nice, so only 20 minutes from me. So he really was doing really, really well when he lived there. And then something happened to him, didn't it? Yeah. So, well, I guess your whole theme of your podcast unexpected turns and we'll obviously speak to Boz more about it in the actual episode when he joins but he basically had a big crash early spring 2019 he had a crash in Italy and whacked his head Mm. and from there had a severe concussion which effectively ended his career it's been quite a news story hasn't it the link with dementia and things like that Yeah. yeah again we'll have to speak to him more about it but he definitely had you know, it wasn't just sort of a end of cycling career injury for racing, but for a, a while there, it was really quite a bad, serious injury. So that for him was a huge change. He went from one minute, he was in a really good place in his new team. He was getting ready to do the Tour de France again that year. And then Bash, just in one moment on a, on a descent, he was looking at the rest of his life for something else to do, I guess. Mm. I do remember when you joined Sky, mm. he was destined for the top, wasn't he? He was going to be one of the top Mm. top riders and just in an instant like that it's changed oh yeah it'll be fascinating to talk to him and find out 
a little bit more about him and about his recovery really exactly we very much look forward to our chat with Ian Boswell morning Ian good morning how are you what's happening mate what's up Debo not much sorry I'm a few minutes late our dog has been giving us trouble this morning oh well so you're another one with a dog Beverly's got a dog but Beverly's dog at the moment is looking after her son who's not well. So we've both got our sons oh. home at the moment. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well. I'm Anne Dibbon. Up in the top corner there is my friend Beverly. And of course, you know our guest host today, Jonathan, who was your teammate? Yes, and now the rightful owner of my old coffee machine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully it's still working. I mean, that's still going <laughs> strong. That's uh... good. Then that's going to be pride of place in our new kitchen when we get that. So that's the best thing I'm going to bring back from France, I think. <laughs> good, good. You got the, uh, I guess all you need is a little a little power adapter and you'll be set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we got that already. It's going to be sweet. Cool. So anyway, how are things today, Ian? Good. It's uh, a rainy day. So I'm, it's a bit dark in here. I've got the wood stove behind me. It's pretty cold up here. Yeah, it's nice. nice time of year up here. It's like starting to change from from fall into winter. I think we had our first frost yesterday. So starting to get cold. Wow. But look what the weather's like where Beverly is in Wales. Oh, it's beautiful today. It's really lovely today. I do have a question for you, Beverly. Yes. Um, I've recently been watching this show, Sex Education, which is, I guess, filmed in Wales. <laughs> and I'm, I'm blown away that every scene is sunny. And I'm like, this can't be the UK because it's just like... Every day, I'm like, this looks like in like a Southern California American high school because it's like sunny and bright. <laughs> no, but maybe I don't. Maybe they've just maybe they've just picked it picked the right days to film. They definitely have, but there's certainly that's fake museum because it always rains in Wales. We've got so many mountains and it's very green. So no, it's not. But um, it's beautiful, but um, definitely not sunny every day. No. <laughs> Yeah, but it is today. It is today. Look, honestly, I'm saying that, but it is today. Anyway, and thank you so much for coming on. First of all, could you perhaps tell us how you got into cycling? Yeah. Um, so I grew up on the west coast of the US. My dad and mom both kind of were involved in endurance sports growing up. My mom raced some triathlon and mountain bike, and my dad did triathlon professionally back in the 80s. So it was a pretty easy avenue, I guess, for me to get into cycling. I mean, I think there's a pretty high bar of entry just as far as, you know, having the equipment and knowing kind of, you know, the, the technical side of the sport. So yeah, I started off racing BMX when I was probably eight or nine, um, which is a fun way to kind of get into cycling because it's, it's short, it's easy, it's, it's cool, um, especially as a, as a young kid. And then when I was, I think 12, I was finally able to fit onto my mom's road bike and there was a local uh, professional race in town and they had like a kid's criterium afterwards. So I jumped into that and it was pretty low competition level, but I won and I was like, sweet, this is awesome. I, I won, I won a race. <laughs> so from there, I kind of just gradually got more and more into, into the racing side of it. You know, I always played kind of the other major American sports through high school and, and whatnot, you know, basketball and football, but slowly I kind of was drawn more to, to cycling. I guess maybe, you know, I, I love the team sport dynamic of, you know, major American sports, but I think the, the kind of individual freedom of mm -hmm. cycling at the time, you know, when I could train by myself and I tended to excel at sports. And I think the cool thing with cycling is I kind of got out of it. What I put into, it. I wasn't really dependent on, you know, my teammates 
doing well, especially when you think about low level school sports, it's like they don't have yeah. enough kids to field a, a superstar team and you're kind of dependent on the whole team to do well. And, and as a young cyclist, like you can kind of excel through the ranks, you know, you go to national championships by yourself. And if you've put in the work, you tend to, to do well. You didn't really start racing until you were 12. Yeah, which I guess in the US is pretty old. <laughs> or yeah, mm. I mean, I'm sorry, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty young to start racing. Yeah. I know in the UK there's like a lot more kind of junior yeah. development programs and whatnot. I mean, I'll say and then I went to my first national championships when I was 14. So I'd say from 14 onwards is when I really kind of got fairly into it. You know, and I I would I just went to playing basketball and that was the only sport I played outside of of cycling. But where I grew up in Oregon, you know, we had pretty severe winters as well. So mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time, you know, skiing and snowboarding during the winter months and then wouldn't really start riding my bike until probably February or March. Jonathan can relate, you know, back mm-hmm. then it seemed like you could kind of, you know, there weren't junior riders training year round. It was like, cool, I'll start riding my bike in February. I'll race like, mm-hmm. you know, May, June, July, August, and then go back to my other sports as it's, it's very much become a, a year round sport now. Until like Jonathan, you have the coach take you aside and say, why has this child got bruises on his forehead, on his shoulders? <laughs> no, he should not be playing rugby. We've put him in for national races. So poor Jonathan had to, yeah. I quit rugby in year 10. So I used to get battered in rugby matches and then have to go to cross training on Thursday. And I'd be a rugby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I think especially in, in the US where there's not, I mean, especially back in like the early 2000s, there wasn't, the same real culture around cycling so especially in American high school you know where I was kind of in this crowd of like the basketball players like I kept my lives very separate like my school and basketball life was like very separate than my cycling life you know like I didn't want my basketball friends to know that I was wearing spandex and and riding (laughs) my bike around Um, and it worked out pretty well because you know most of the racing was through the summer when we were on summer vacation so I was just kind of that kid that would you know hang out with all the basketball kids during the school year and then disappear off to you know national championships I guess when I was 16 17 started going to Europe in the summer but by then you know a lot of my friends kind of knew I was the the biker kid I got called Lance Armstrong a lot of times in in high school (laughs) wow you moved to Europe just part-time did you when you were 16, 17? Yeah, so actually my junior year of high school, so my last year before graduating high school, I guess you'd call it secondary school, I did actually a rotary youth exchange in Belgium. Not really for cycling, but I there was a, an announcement on a, on a school speaker that they were having this you know seminar in the gym to, for kids who were interested in doing an exchange program. And I was in English class and I just wanted to get out of class. So I went to this <laughs> seminar and... Uh, yeah, so I signed up and got accepted. So I spent my junior year of high school in Belgium. And I was like, oh, cool. Belgium's like a, a great cycling country. Mm. But I was, uh, I was in downtown mm. Brussels, which was not conducive to cycling at all. My family, mm. you know, didn't care at all about cycling. Good. You know, and it's also through the winter months and it's just like rained and was miserable the whole time. But it was probably a good, I mean, in hindsight, it probably paid more dividends in the sense of like, I learned how to speak some French and I learned how to kind of live by myself and independently and cycling wise, it wasn't really advantageous for like training or racing. But yeah, like I said, you know, looking back on it later, it was definitely helpful for other aspects of my life, you know, kind of what was to come next, which yeah. So kind of graduated through the the USA cycling ranks and it wasn't until 2013, I guess, December, 2012, when I signed at team sky that I decided that you know, the best way to kind of pursue this is to move over to Nice, um, France full-time. So I did that and I was there for pretty much eight years um, straight. I came back to the U.S., you know, pretty much just for for holidays and little gaps in the calendar, but spent 
pretty much full time over there. Mm. So you were right at the top. You were riding on the world stage with Team Sky. And then you made the decision to move to Katusha. Now, was that to get a bit more freedom so that you could go for your own ambitions or were there other reasons involved in your move to Katusha? Yeah, I mean, I had spent five years at Team Sky and, you know, I'd raced, I think, two or three of them with with uh, your son. And, and it was an awesome time. You know, I learned a lot there. And I think when I first joined the team, you know, it was very much the the pinnacle of, you know, kind of teams and organization and, and resources. But I struggled a lot the first, especially the first two years. Like there was multiple times when I was like about to write Brailsford and be like, I'm, I am going to, you know, give up my contract because I'm just not holding my, I'm not holding my own here. Um, you know, and I was living in a foreign country and I was just getting my teeth kicked in pretty much every race. You know, I was training with, with Froomey and Richie because my friend Dombrowski, another American, we signed at the same time. And we had come to the team as kind of like, you know, these up and coming American stars. And we did not really perform at all the first couple of years. So it wasn't until my third year on the team that I actually started kind of performing at a level that maybe the team expected me to, to ride at. Mm. But as I kind of progressed within the team, you know, the the riders within the team just kept getting better and stronger. And I knew that, you know, I wanted to I wanted to ride the tour. And I think that it was it became clear to me that it was harder and harder to kind of break into that the tour squad within within the organization of, of Sky now Ineos. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is just they know you so well that they maybe they see your flaws maybe more than they see your possibility of kind of a breakout ride. So yeah, in 2017, I decided that for 2018, 2019, I was going to leave the team to go to Katusha. And, and it was really like a fresh start, you know, yeah. something new or something different. You know, they were excited to have me. And they're like, oh, you know, we can, we'd love to have you as like a mountain climber for, for Zachary at the tour. And it was all very kind of a fresh, a fresh beginning for me after being in, in the Sky team for, for five years where I kind of had probably reached my limits as far as what the team was willing to kind of give me for opportunities and you know leadership or you know even just races that I could participate in yeah so that was a new start at Katusha and you did very well in your first year and then in your second year you were aiming for the tour yeah yeah so I'd come through the 2018 season and probably had maybe not the most successful season results wise but like you know I got to ride the tour and I you know really kind of established my place within the team and then 2019 I was you know kind of just building up through the year and and Torino was and it was really the first race that I was starting to actually kind of come around and, and feel good. And yeah, I think it was stage four or five. Yeah, we were just on a random downhill. And I uh, I don't really remember how I crashed, but I think someone overlapped my front wheel on a descent. And yeah, went over the handlebars and, and got a concussion. And it was, at the time, it didn't really seem like anything. You know, I'd, I'd crashed before. I'd had concussions before. You know, I actually tried to get back on my bike and keep riding. But my team director's like, no, you're unconscious. Mm-hmm. And put me in the in the ambulance and... You know, at the time I thought, cool, I'll just go back to, you know, I'll go back to the team bus. I'll jump on a flight, get back to Nice, take a day off and then get back to training. But our team doctor was actually on the bus and he uh, was very diligent. He saw the crash was on TV and he's like, no, we need to go to the hospital. So I spent a night in a hospital and in the middle of nowhere, Italy. Yeah, the team, you know, moved on because it was a stage race. So I kind of stuck in this hotel it was right in this um, hospital. And then uh, my wife or fiance at the time was, was over in Europe and we came back. She came over to, to pick me up with uh, Phil. Phil Dignan drove over from Monaco to pick me up. And yeah, I went back to Nice and kind of thought that I was going to take a couple of days off and be back to racing soon. And the symptoms and mm-hmm. kind of lingering you know, consequences from the concussion just kind of continued. And yeah, that was the, the last ever uh, road race I did as a, as a world tour cyclist. And I think it was April maybe March or April of, of 2019. So it was, 
definitely something I did not expect to, you never expect it to be your last race, but no. um, it, it was, yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that, Ian, you know, about how that impacted on you on a daily basis, the, the after effects of that concussion? Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, I think it's hard to distinguish between, you know, I definitely had symptoms from the con- concussion. A lot of them were, you know, vestibular vision and just balance. And, you know, there's a lot of mood swings, but there also came this point, you know, a couple months into kind of the recovery process that the realization of that I wasn't going to probably race again on the road or, you know, trying to find a contract and deciding, you know, what am I going to do? And it was, you know, I'd raced in the world tour for eight, seven years. Um, and I'd never crashed and broken a bone, but I'd hit my head on numerous occasions. So for whatever reason, you know, I never put my arm out to brace the fall and break the collarbone. Mm-hmm. I always just landed on my head. Um, mm-hmm. and at the time I was 28. Um, so still relatively young and if anything, probably coming into like some of the better years of my career, but I guess the realization of like how fragile our bodies are and, and the risk that is taken in, in road racing, especially, you know, there's, like I said, the, the crash that was the last was just so random and that can happen again. And I guess, you know, speaking with, with neurologists and kind of specialists that I was working with for recovery, you know, I realized that, you know, it wasn't a matter of if I crashed again, it was a matter of when, um, and just knowing my history of crashes, I would probably wind up hitting my head again. Mm. So I'd say that time period of not knowing what I was going to do next, that was probably the most challenging, you know, and just dealing with the symptoms of, of the concussion, mm. you know, being more fatigued and tired and just loss of kind of identity. Cause you know, there's a long while where I got off of, you know, social media and all these platforms just because I didn't want to be involved with that world of cycling, which, you know, for so long was like, that was everything, you know, I'd wake up and ride with my cycling friends or check cycling news. And that was like everything that you know, my whole life was revolving around this very small bubble and very quickly you're on the outside thinking like, well, what if I don't go back to this? Who am I? Who are my friends going to be? It's not like I was 38 years old and kind of knew that retirement was coming and I had time to plan for for what was next. It is very difficult to suddenly go, as you say, to having to deal with the symptoms of having your concussion, but also the fact that you basically lost your job a double whammy if you like you've got to deal with the two yeah who did you have supporting you with that um I mean I guess there was a lot of you know my my family and my wife now was super supportive you know I did go see a counselor a couple times just to kind of help talk through the decision making and I guess I would I was asking a lot of people around me I wanted them to make a decision for me you know I wanted my wife to be like hey I think you should stop I'm like cool like my wife said I should stop I should stop but she was very wise in realizing that it wasn't her decision to make. She could give me her perspective, but she wasn't actually going to make that decision for me. And I think as a, you know, an athlete, you like to, and I think as a, maybe as a human, you like to have someone else to like pin it on. Like, oh, like it was like, mm. I, you know, internally and in, in my gut, I felt like I should stop, but I didn't want to be the one to make that final call. In a way, you know, it would have been like so easy had a doctor said like, yeah, you shouldn't do this again, or my wife or family. You know, I did have this long period of time between, you know, the crash and the end of the season when my contract ran up to like decide what I was going to do. And those were a long, you know, it was what, nine months. Mm-hmm. And that was challenging, you know, because there was times when I was like, yep, great. Like I've got, we're getting married next year and we bought this house and I'll find a new job and, you know, I'll walk away from the sport completely. And 
great. And then there's other times when I'm like, well, geez, I still love it. I'm still young. I still have, you know, mm. desires to, to race. And, you know, cause it's really all, you know, you know, I'd never had a, another job before outside of, you know, racing my bike. So it was a, yeah, it was a very trying time. Exactly. You know, we, we talk about excellence and funding in sport depends upon that and excellence and achievements and the sort of focus on the safety of athletes can be easily lost get left behind and um, how did you feel did you have a lot of support from the cycling world cycling profession uh no not really at all um, to be honest you know and and i think the team oh. at the time you know this was the last year that katusha was was a team so they were having like all their own internal issues with you know pain riders and you know just trying to keep the team alive that you know i was yeah probably i was like a small little embers on the side and they had like a bonfire going on within the team so i was just kind of like probably an afterthought of of what they were worried about you know and had i been on a different team you know in hindsight looking back had i been on a team like like Ineos or a team with you know maybe more stability and, and organization maybe that would have been different you know maybe they would have mm. tried to find specialists and you know kind of been more supportive but it's, it's an issue that all cyclists mm. really do face unfortunately is that there's you know, your contract and your career is so short and fickle and you're so easily for 99% of the riders, you're so easily replaceable that yeah. teams can easily just say, Hey, this rider's having issues. Let's just, let's just move on to move on to the next. Because yeah, the reality is that I am as far as a, as a rider, you know, there's 200 other kids with the same ability knocking at the door to try to get into, into my position. Yeah. You're not people, you're there to actually form a role for the team, aren't you? Mm. Yeah. Something that you can relate to, isn't it, having that sudden... Yeah, yeah, definitely. I was just remembering then as well about when you had your crash, because I think at the time I was racing in Australia on the track, but it was one of them, you know, there's so many crashes in cycling, and then you kind of hear maybe I'd text you or someone had texted me and said, oh, Boz has crashed, and it's like, oh, okay. And then you hear like a week later, like, oh, yeah, he's, he's just come back from Italy, he's been in hospital for two or three days and then like oh yeah and he's still not like moving around he's just you know he has to stay in bed in the dark and then you're like oh okay and all of a sudden it's like oh it's quite a serious injury and yeah I can just imagine that especially with that Katusha like you say they were closing at the end of the year you are just pretty much left to your own devices and you're just there trying to figure out exactly like someone said you try to figure out how to recover from your injuries and also then what to do next and it's a <laughs> It's a complicated matter. But then how did you move into, so I think you moved already back to America end of that year in 2019. And then you started obviously doing all the bits you do now. You've actually got your own podcast, Gravel King. <laughs> gravel King. One, the only gravel race <laughs> that I was following live. The biggest gravel race of the year, I think you won this year. So how did you kind of slide into that, into your next, next chapter? And how much decision was it to make with your injury history because obviously gravel racing well that's actually what my mum wanted to ask (laughs) she was asking is gravel racing safer I said well on one hand yes because you're not in like a big bunch and I can't imagine as many as many like pileups but on the other hand it's gravel racing so it's off-road it's technical and it's so you know how did you go into the gravel and how much of a choice was it to sort of risk yourself again racing on the bike 
Yeah. Yeah. So I guess throughout the kind of the later half of, of 2019, you know, I'd had a good relationship with, with Wahoo fitness, you know, they were a partner of team sky and then with Katusha. Um, so I knew the, I knew a lot of people within the, the brand well, and my wife and I organize a, a gravel kind of fun ride at the end of the year here in Vermont. And they're one of the, the partners of it. They were up here and I guess it was September of, of 2019. And I told them like, Hey, like I'm, you know, I've decided now I'm not going to go back to to pro racing, um, you know, I'm going to start looking for kind of the next chapter and the next, you know, part of my career. And they said, oh, well, we have a, we've actually been looking for someone, you know, with a similar kind of background to, to fill a role with us as, as an athlete kind of liaison. So starting in January of 2020, I got a full-time position at Wahoo, where kind of managing a lot of our relationships with teams and athletes and which is actually fun. I, I enjoy it. It's, it's really weird to be on the other side of contract negotiations. Mm you know, as far as the, my job goes, you know, we're also Wahoo sponsors, a lot of events here in the U S gravel events and triathlons and road races and whatnot. So part of my job was going to be going to these events as part of, you know, the team that, you know, is working the expo and in the booth. And so I was like, well, cool. I mean, if we're going to be at the expos and stuff, I might as well participate in these races or events rides anyways, you know, without real any kind of strong understanding of the, the competition level or, you know, kind of where I was going to be at physically to, I could just show up and, and ride them and have fun. And, you know, they're very much like a, a sportee for a grand fond where we stop and go to aid stations and, you know, have a beer afterwards and, and very casual. But then in 2020, obviously the, the pandemic struck. And so I didn't go to any events. So I took on more responsibility at, at Wahoo with just, you know, different roles within the marketing department which if anything was probably a, a benefit because it gave me time to actually acquire the skills needed to perform my job efficiently. You know, just a lot of computer work, mm-hmm. you know, Excel sheets and organized order forms and all these things that, you know, you never think about, you know, I used to think as a cyclist, like, oh man, I have three emails in my <laughs> inbox. You know, now I've got, you know, 50 emails in my inbox that I'm, <laughs> you know, just waiting to get back to. But yeah. So starting in this year, 2021, it looks like events were going to kind of be, be back. And, you know, I'd, more or less feel almost a fully recovered from my concussion. You know, there's still a lot of things that, you know, kind of vestibularly that affect me, especially under more fatigue. But I decided, you know, I still love riding my bike and, you know, I have, you know, thankfully, you know, partners specialized was happy to provide me with bikes and, and whatnot. So I knew I was going to these events anyway. So I still know how to train. I still love riding my bike, ride and train very differently than I did when I was living in, in Nice and Monaco. But yeah, I went to a race down in... I was going to ask you, it's, it's a balancing act, isn't it? You say you love riding your bike. And yet, as Jonathan was saying, you know, there is a danger in these gravel races that you might crash again. It's that balance uh, between, yes, I love riding my bike. Yes, I might crash. I mean, do you ever question when you're there riding that bike? Do you question yourself and say, you know, why am I doing this? Yeah. I mean, I would say all the time. And I guess that's probably the biggest thing that's changed since, you know, racing on the road is my level of risk I'm willing to take. And, you know, that's one thing that, you know, Jonathan knows well, is like, if you're at a race in Italy and like the Peloton screaming down a descent or through a town and roundabouts, like you have to hold that line. If you're not like, you're going to be shot out the back and you're never going to catch back on. And yeah, you're going to get back to the team bus and feel like an idiot. Cause it wasn't even, you had 200 other riders that were willing to do it without, without thinking twice. Mm. And as Jonathan said, you know, these gravel races are so long and, and they're becoming more competitive, but the competition level at the moment is, to be honest, it's lower than the world tour. You know, you have 4,000 people on the start line of, of, you know, unbound gravel, the, the big race that I won. But after 
40 miles, it's down to 70 riders. And a lot of them have very little Peloton experience. So for me, it feels a lot safer because I can, you know, I can leave a gap in the wheel. You're not moving as fast. Mm. Kind of the ironic thing is because my level of risk is so much lower than it was, or than even the other riders I'm racing against, it's actually kind of been beneficial. You know, we'll hit a technical downhill and the top guys just, you know, bombing it and they're going over rocks and all these things. And I'm just like, cool, I'm just going to ride my speed. I'm going to take a safe line. I'll make it to the bottom and I'll use my power to catch up afterwards. And turns out that's actually been beneficial because I get to the bottom. I don't have any flat tires. I haven't crashed. Mm. I haven't lost equipment. And, you know, I'll be riding past people in the descent that, you know, they've flatted, they've crashed, they they've lost a bottle. And like, because I'm just riding slower um, and safer, you know, I'm able to kind of manage my, my risk level. And I guess that's the thing now is I am in these big gravel events, but by no means am I willing to like take a risk beyond what I'm willing to foresee is that's due too much. And that's probably the biggest thing is mentally the, the mindset of like winning doesn't really matter anymore. Like I'm just here, cool. I'm riding my bike, having fun. And, you know, if, if someone's willing to take a risk that is beyond my level of comfort, like, cool, they can go ahead. And if I catch them on the, on the flat section or on the climb, great. If not, then I'll just keep riding my pace and, and make it to the finish. And I think that'll change in the coming years with gravel mm-hmm. as it becomes more competitive. But it's one thing that I'm still very, I'm still very aware of is just the, the reality of mm. riding safe. I think there's a huge difference. And obviously the gravel surface is more slippery than, or more unpredictable than, than road, mm. but it's amazing just how much more the Peloton is strung out. You know, you're not drafting, you're not moving at, you know, 40 K an hour, you're moving at 25 K an hour. So you can see what's coming quicker. You know, your reaction time is hopefully better because you're not, things don't happen as quick. It's more just kind of drawn out and spread out. So yeah, I'm able to, that's still probably the number one thing on my mind is like, I want to get to the finish and be able to call my wife and say, Hey, I'm done. I'm safe. I'm done. I'm safe. (laughs) Yeah. There was a race I did in San Diego this uh, July and it was just, it was way too, too dangerous and and kind of sketchy. And I didn't do well at all because I, it was just too dangerous. I was happy to be able to call my wife and say, Hey, I, I finished, I'm safe, but I didn't do well at all, but that that's fine. You know, that's not the, that's not the goal anymore is to, you know, hmm. I don't want to call her from the hospital bed anymore. So obviously you seem to be enjoying it. Are you, are you happy with where you, where you are now, Ian? Um, I'd say I am. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot going on now, which is kind of crazy, you know, especially coming off of a successful year racing gravel, you know, there's been a lot of brands or races that are like, Hey, you know, you've done well, like we want you to come to our race. We want to sponsor you. And, you know, there was a moment that, um, I guess in the middle of the summer when, you know, I had the opportunity not to go back to professional road racing, but, you know, to take on, you know, kind of this privateer lifestyle and, and race gravel full-time and, you know, leave my position at Wahoo. And for probably a month, I was like, cool, that sounds sweet. Like going back to this pro lifestyle, but very quickly, I snapped myself back into reality and be like, you know what? I have, I have something good going. My wife is pregnant. So she's going to be due at the end of the year. Uh-huh. Congratulations. And I realized, you know, I've, yeah, I've kind of put that that chapter of being a you know full-time pro behind me. And I've got a lot of other things in my life that that bring me joy and happiness. And I still get to ride my bike and go to events and stay involved with the community without having to live that lifestyle. And just the, I mean, Jonathan knows about it. It's like you're just when you go back to that lifestyle, it's like you're constantly, you're constantly stressed about like, you know, am I gonna have a contract next year? And I spent a lot of time in the the months following that crash, like, you know, kind of letting go of that lifestyle and the realization that I'm a pro athlete. And that was like 
extremely hard and challenging. You know, I went through a lot of like mental difficulties during that period. And I feel like if I went back to it, I'm going to go through all those emotions again. And I don't want to deal with that. So I realized that, you know, the best thing to do is probably stay where I'm at. You know, the grass isn't always, isn't always greener. And sounds good. I can happily, yeah, I can happily watch the, the Tour de France or the Giro or Roubaix and appreciate and admire what those riders are doing, but realize that I don't have to, I don't have to be there. And yeah. And I guess that's the biggest thing I've come to come to terms with it. And I don't, I don't miss it at all. I don't have regrets of stopping when I did watching the Tour de France is awesome, but by no means do I want to be back there yeah, racing on those roads with those, with those riders anymore. When I watch races now, I see them go down some of these roads in like, you know, the classics or the, like a proper descent in the Grand Tour. I, I just constantly find myself going, oh, and like sort of wincing as they wing round corners and fight for the sprint. And I'm just, you know, when you, you're racing and you're watching it, you just don't even think about it. Because like you say, you're just so, if you think about you're going to crash, then you, you're already beat at the back. You can never think about you might crash. But yeah, every time I watch it on the TV now, now I know I don't have to go and do it. I'm just like almost scared for them. I'm just like, oh, it just looks so sketchy. Yeah. I always think, God, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy, the race. Yeah, I mean, it is it is nuts. And then I think, you know, same with, with Jonathan, you know, it's, it's also hard because we're, you know, when we were racing, you're so surrounded by highly successful people. You know, we both raced on, on Team Sky, which is, you know, arguably the best team of the last, you know, 20 years. So you're surrounded by people who are constantly being successful. And so the minute you're, you know, not around that or you're on a different team or you stop racing, you know, you're like, oh, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not there anymore. But to realize taking a step back to where I am now, I'm like, oh, wow, like I was a kid who grew up, you know, racing BMX bikes in, in Oregon, you know, thousands of miles away from the Tour de France. And, you know, I made it to the best team. Like there's an accomplishment in that on its own. Mm. And so to realize like, wow, I had a, a dream as a child and I achieved that. Like, how cool is that? Of course, you know, mm. every young rider thinks they're going to win Paris-Roubaix or the Tour de France, which as you get closer to the top, you realize that it's actually further away, the closer you get. Yeah. But to realize like, Hey, that was awesome. Like I, I achieved that goal and that's cool. And like, there's a lot of like pride to be had just in, in making it to that level. Definitely. Are you proud of your accomplishments? Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, something Jonathan can probably relate to it's, it's weird to also achieve such a life goal at such a young age. You know, you think when kids grow up, they want to be an astronaut, they want to be a, you know, something else. And like, you know, my goal from the time I was 12 years old is, oh, I want to ride in the Tour de France. And, you know, I achieved that at 27 years old. And it's like, well, what do I do now? You know, it's like you achieve this goal that most people never actually, you know, get to achieve their childhood dream. And you reach that level at such a young age. I think that even still today, I'm still kind of, like I said, I've got, you know, a baby on the way and we've got a really good lifestyle going now, but it's, it's also hard to ever envision living with such purpose again. You know, when you wake up every day and you have like a very tangible task to achieve something that is uniquely yours and uniquely your dream. And I think it's, you know, it's, I think it's hard for athletes to kind of come to terms with, you know, what's next, because you have something that's so clear and it's so, you know, it's, it's really black or white, you know, you either make it or you don't. And it's, it's very recognizable. It's very privileged, you know, to be able to race on a team like Sky. And then you, you're 25, 27 years old and you, are done with that and you're like well what do I do now you know I put so much time and energy into this one single focus of my life without ever thinking about there's times that I'm like well that like that chapter of my life is over but I'm still 30 years old like I have a lot of life left but 
very that was a no goals I have a lot of ambitions but yeah I'm gonna say your ambitions will have changed now so what what are your ambitions now you you talked about how your ambition was to win the Tour de France what is your ambition now oh I don't know I'm probably still figuring that out I mean I'd love to be a, a good father and be a good dad support our our child that's coming sure but yeah that's not as best ambition in the world that Ian <laughs> Yeah. Nothing better. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, I think it's, it's also challenging because so many things in our lives now for, for Jonathan and I, we have so much less control over, you know, and I think that's something that I became, obviously when you're in a team, you either get selected for race or you don't, there's some things that are out of your control, but largely it feels like you really are dependent more or less on yourself and solely on kind of your, the work and time and effort you put in. And, you know, now even with my job at Wahoo, it's like, you know, half the things I'm working on, I'm waiting for someone else to respond to. So true. Mm. As a cyclist, you're just at like, basically you're at the very bottom of the rung, but everything you do yeah. is pretty much just to help you, isn't it? Yeah. If you work hard, you'll go a bit quicker and you'll be a bit better. And it's very simple, isn't it? You just have to ride your bike as quick as possible. But yeah, the moment you have to start relying on other people, because I have that in my job now sometimes. <laughs> just mm. annoying, isn't it? You can't... Uh, yeah you have to have other people do stuff yeah you and also i think when you a cyclist although you you're always maybe hungry or thinking about this race or that race you're very much you just do your bike ride you know even if you've done a long ride you're never going to finish past four o'clock in the afternoon you know normally it's going to be about two and that's it your day's done you can do whatever you want with the day yeah well and i'm not sure if you've had this realization yet john but the the fact that there's no off season in a normal job mm. you know i'm like <laughs> You know, I was like, wait, wait, like the first year, 2020, I was like, you know, it came like October came around and I was like, wait, so we just keep working until January. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it's like, and I was like, <laughs> you know, we met with, you know, I met with a friend and like, yeah, you know, like if you just keep, you know, if you keep working for the next, you know, 30 something years, then you can retire. I'm like, wait, so people do this their whole life. They work Monday through Friday <laughs> for 40 years. <laughs> And like, maybe you take a week off here, a week off there. And this, this reality of like, wow, mm. like we had this opportunity of our life where you're racing, like, yes, you're traveling. And like, you know, Jonathan knows like people whinge and moan on the bus about, you know, the travel or the hotel, but you have this like two months of the year where you're just like, cool. Like, I don't really need to ride. I can hang out. Like I can do all these things that you become so like internally your biological clocks. Like even for myself now, I'm like, it's the off season, yeah. even though I'm not <laughs> racing full time. And it just feels weird that I'm like, wait, it's Monday. I've still been having an off season <laughs> this year. I've still been working, but I've just been traveling around yeah. here and there with maybe yeah. just luckily I work, work remote. So yeah. it's still just been about possible. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, and I, you know, I still stay in touch with a lot of my friends who are still racing and you know there's been riders who ask me like hey I'm like I'm thinking about stopping I'm like well if you want if you feel like it's ready to stop like go for it but it is a very unique lifestyle you know it's yeah something that not many people experience where you're you know in this really cool oftentimes living in an awesome spot and you're you know being paid a, a very li livable wage and you have this huge amount of freedom to just like not check in every day you know you go do mm -hmm. like some days your job is like an hour and a half ride to Monaco to get a coffee and come back. And you're like, Oh man, I got to get my kid on. And you know, <laughs> you're like it puts into reality of like how hard people work for much less kind of fame and notoriety and, and, and money to be you know completely honest. Mm. Yeah. For me as a parent, Ian, I know we go back to descending safely and you keeping yourself 
safe, it is so much easier to watch the bike races and think, oh, I don't need to worry about Jonathan. I know he's not going to crash. It's going to be safe. Yeah. And yes, you say it's a lovely lifestyle being a bike rider, but every day you ride, you are putting yourself at risk and in danger. And it is a change. And so it must be nice for your family and your wife, particularly now she's having a, a baby, to know that actually you will be ringing from the finish line and not from the hospital. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the goal. I mean, to not to yeah. not crash. And, you know, like I said, it's it's still I still love riding my bike, you know, and there's still obviously an inherent risk and even just going out training or doing an easy ride. But I would say it's a lot safer. And I guess like if I and, and this is also something I realized when I had crashed, I would much rather be riding my bike later in my life than racing my bike for another five years. It's a chance that Jonathan sees it, I'm sure as well, where people retire and they they hate the sport. They don't want to ride their bike anymore. They they're fed up with the sport. And it's like I stopped at a time where it's like I still love it. I appreciate it. I admire it, but I don't have to do it necessarily. So it's it's really like a privilege now when I get the freedom in my schedule to sneak out for a ride or go into my basement and do a workout. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. I have free hour and a half to go ride, which wasn't always the case before. I'm I'm still, I guess I realize how fortunate I am to still be able to to ride my bike and travel a little bit with with a bike. And you've taken on other things as well. Jonathan was mentioning earlier about not just your podcast, but you've taken over this farm. Yeah, we have a, a reasonable sized farm. We've got a bunch of apples, got like 20 something apple trees and we've got 25 chickens and big gardens. And yeah, we've got our hands in a lot of things. And I think the pandemic also allowed us to not be traveling. So we started a lot of projects and then it's been a crazy year this year because I have been traveling with work and work's been busier and yeah, so we've got the farm, which is maybe that's kind of going back to my long-term goal is, you know, that would be something to make this like a, a full-time job. Mm. I don't have all the skills yet. There's a lot of things I don't know how to do. <laughs> I'd love to learn, but it's, it all takes time. But yeah, I'm also on the, the local, we're in a very small town. There's like 500 people. So I'm on the volunteer fire department as well. Oh, wow. Um, so yeah, a lot of, a lot of things going on sometimes. Sounds great. I think it's partially... Yeah. I mean, partially maybe it's like due to my background as an athlete is like you enjoy just being fatigued. So <laughs> I try to find ways to stay tired and busy. And it is busy. I, you did say when you were a cyclist, it was all up to you. You were the one that set your goals. You were the one that made sure you were riding and doing the things you should. But I think that does equip you from everything you've said. It does equip you for life after cycling and actually determining your own lifestyle because you and I know from Jonathan, both of you have decided actually no I don't want a straight nine to five job I want to determine my own path yeah and it seems that's what you're doing you've taken on this myriad of challenges yeah and so have you Jonathan. you've got a whole set of challenges and different things yeah it's a difficult thing to do because you've got lots of different balls to juggle like your farm like gravel racing like your wahoo like your podcast even but do you think because you always were self-sufficient and you were always set your own plans and you always raced and looked after yourself, do you think that's helped you now post-cycling? Yeah, I think definitely. And I think, you know, it's something that I've been thinking about more recently is like the, and it's probably due to kind of the organization at, at Team Sky is like how, you know, my brain is always thinking about efficiency. You know, even when I compare it to my wife, like I'm always thinking about how can I streamline this and make this more efficient and more productive. And it's, sometimes beneficial, sometimes not. But I think that, yeah, the, the skills that you do learn as an athlete, 
it's like, you know, neither Jonathan and I have a, a degree from a university, but the skills we have, you know, there's sometimes at work, I'm like, how did I get this job at Wahoo? And like, when we have people who have, you know, gone to a four-year college for a specific role, and I've never, I've never taken a college class in marketing, but somehow I'm very valuable to, to Wahoo, which is like, mm. this is strange. Cause I don't actually know, like, especially when I first joined, I'm like they're using all these acronyms and terminology. I'm like, I have no idea what they're talking about, <laughs> but I've, uh, you know, you look and you bring your own kind of skill set. Skill set, sure. To the to the table that is, yeah, that's, that's different than what other people have. So yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely you definitely learn things. You're more valuable, I think, than you think you are, because you can easily doubt yourself. You know, I didn't go to school. I didn't, you know, I don't have a background in this. I didn't work at a company before mm-hmm. to you know get the skills I have now. But yeah, you do kind of just learning how to like manage yourself is is something that not everyone has. You know. And it's, yeah, it's a very valuable trait to, to kind of carry on in life. And it's one that as an athlete, you know, you have, haven't you? It's, you don't, you don't just do your nine to five job. You've got to think of it all the time. Yeah. It's your life. It's not just a job. It is your whole, whole life. It also impacts on what you were saying about your identity. You were saying you identified yourself as an athlete, as a cyclist, and you felt when that was gone, when that job was gone, you'd lost part of your identity. How have you gone about building that identity back up or changing that identity? Yeah, well, it's, you know, it, it was also a realization of living where we, where we do, where, you know, we're in this small town, no one really cares that much about professional cycling, um, which is nice. You know, it's like, and you know, when we, especially when you're living in, you know, Jonathan and I were both in, in Nice and Monaco and you're kind of fully surrounded by other pro athletes and so you're constantly being compared and kind of you know measured you know and I come back here and people in town like oh yeah you're that runner guy I'm like well I'm a cyclist but sure like (laughs) yeah you're that athletic guy that's okay and to realize that like people especially here and I'm sure it's similar to where you guys live you know if if you're not known as this athlete it's really how you're you know who you are as a person are you involved in the community are you helping people out Mm. so there's a lot of identity kind of tied to that now that's, you know, joining the fire department is like a very valuable and, you know, beneficial way to help the community that yeah. maybe in Europe, being a pro cyclist is, is very advantageous and that in ways benefiting your community. But now it's not necessarily tied to fully what I do on the bike. It's more tied to being part of, of where we live and, you know, being a good person overall. And I think that as a, as a pro athlete, you can kind of get away with not being always the best person but people still putting you on a pedestal because Mm. of your accomplishments so it's kind of it's been very humbling to realize like hey you being a good person is so important especially in your you know post-professional careers as an athlete Mm. definitely so so if I was to ask you to describe yourself how would you describe yourself oh boy um (laughs) you keep referring to being a pro athlete as against not being a pro athlete so I'm just curious how you would describe yourself now I don't know um we say unfinished (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah I mean I'd say yeah I mean (laughs) yeah yeah a work in progress I mean definitely still a work in progress um but you know I guess I'm, I'm about to be a father and you know a husband and a community member yeah I guess I you know try to be as, as loyal and responsible as, as I can. And I guess, yeah, a, a good friend, even to, you know, my friends that are still racing or friends who aren't, you know, trying to really just be there for people that 
because I know everyone goes through through tough times and there are people that help me out. So being able to, you know, help others out along the way as well. And yeah, you always have this, you know, kind of piece of, you know, your life that was, you know, so glamorous, but to realize that there's so many other things in life that can still, you know, still bring you joy. And I'd say, yeah, equal, equally as rich and as productive, you know, so it's a change, a definite change in lifestyle for you. But um, you seem, you sound as if you've you've really got it together there. Uh, well, I mean, it's easy to say in a podcast, I've got it together. I mean, if you ask my wife, I'm sure there's times when she'd say I'm a wreck, but. <laughs> and um, that's okay. Yeah, I mean, we're all, yes. And yeah. that's okay, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, there's still a lot. Of, she's, my wife has just woken up. Um, <laughs> she has the day off school. So yeah, there's, I mean, there's still a lot of things that I would like to, I guess, really learn in life. And I think that's maybe one of the nicest things about kind of stopping racing is that, you know, there's so many other interests I have in my life that you kind of put to the side while you're racing, you know, things like, you know, having this little farm here or learning how to, you know, work on a car, or, you know, learning how to, you know, use a chainsaw, things that I, well, it's probably too dangerous to be running a chainsaw when you're a professional cyclist. But, you know, at this point in my life, I mean, hopefully I still don't injure myself, but there's other things that you can do that, and learn that, you know, challenge you as much. And I guess that's probably one of the things that I've realized and learned is that it's, it's really hard to be bad at something, you know, especially when you're, you know, a professional cyclist, like people come to you to ask you questions, like, how do I do this? How do I train? How do I eat? You know, what's, you know, you're a source of knowledge and you get asked a lot of questions. And now I'm at a point in my life where I have to like put down that ego and ask a lot of questions. Like, Hey, I don't know how to do this. Like, how do I do this? And that can be that can be challenging at times, you know, it's something that I've worked on a lot over the last, you know, probably year and a half is just like realizing that it's okay to say, I don't know how to do that. Cause as, yeah, as a pro athlete, you're kind of a, you're an expert in, in this very small and unique field, but the people who are around you admire and, you know, seek your advice. And all of a sudden you're outside of that element and very few people where we live, ask me about training or nutrition. Um, but I have a lot of questions for them about all sorts of <laughs> different, you know, chainsaws, tractors, you know, gardening, apple pruning, all, all sorts of things. I was expecting to talk lots about your concussion and how you recovered, but it's been absolutely fascinating hearing about your transition because as a parent of a recently retired cyclist, it's very enlightening to me how you've changed and what's happened. It's funny to talk about the off season as well. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it? yeah. yeah. Well, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's not, like I said, it's still something I, I wouldn't say I, I struggle with, but I, I guess it, yeah, it took a long time to come to terms with like that your career and that is over, you know, cause it, it's also one of those things that you don't really go back to, you know, mm. if you're working as a, mm -hmm. you know, a nurse and you choose to like retire and take a couple of years off, you can go back and be like, cool, I'm going to go back to nursing. I had, I had fun. It's like, you're not going to turn 45 and be like, cool, I'll go back to, to bike racing. Like you're probably past your prime. <laughs> it's going to be hard to find a team. Mm. Yeah. Um, but like I said, I'm just kind of, almost respecting and admiring what we did achieve rather than reflecting on what we didn't. And, and this is something, you know, I spoke to, you know, Garrett Thomas about it after he won the tour. I'm like, dude, like you just won the tour, like just retire, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, credit, you know, mm. he's being paid a lot of money, you know, he's got a great job, but I asked him this question a couple of years ago and I was over in Nice, like was the disappointment of finishing second worse than, mm. you know, did that outweigh the, the glory of winning? And, you know, it's something you realize as, kind of being around people like, you know, Garen Thomas and Chris Froome, it's like, if you just like, just stop while you're on top, you know, which is easier said than done. But you know, it's like, there's, there's never an end to, 
to the cycling career. You know, it's like, cool, you won the Tour de France. Like, can you win it next year? Can you win five? Can you win seven? And it's like, when does it end? Like the minute you've just won the race, like you've had the biggest achievement of your life, you're already being asked like, what's next? And like that next just never ends. Yeah. It's, it's just a crazy thought to think about how much the cycling world, I think sporting world in general, like it's like, cool, you just did that. Like what's next? And I think that there's very little contentment in, in the world of professional sport, which I think is, is kind of sad. Someone like Chris Room now, it's like, I know the guy fairly well. And it's, it's almost kind of sad to see that he's, you know, he's still going after it, but it's like the reality of he probably, you know, won't achieve the same level that he ever was at, but he's still there trying just as hard, but not. And like you, he probably loves it. He probably loves being out on his bike and racing every day. So if that's what you love, that's probably why he keeps going. Yeah, that's true. And he's, yeah, I mean, he's, he still is, you know, recognizable and, but it just, I, I mean, I guess it, it fascinates me, you know, people like, like him, or, you know, I watched that documentary of Michael Jordan and like this level of competition, like there's never enough, you know, mm-hmm. like even in their, you know, Michael Jordan's, I don't know, 50 or 60 years old now, and he still like relives games in his mind. That's, mm-hmm. that's crazy to me, you know, cause like for my past as a cyclist, yeah. like I put it behind me, like, cool, I did that. Like, you know, I'll be watching a race and like, Oh, we did this climb before, but I'm like, I wasn't, I'm not thinking like, Oh, like I, if I had, if I had done this or that, I could have, you know, been up there. And I think that's, you know, probably a big difference between someone like myself and, and Chris Froome is like, that's why they're so successful is that they are, you know, almost they're, they hyper analyze everything. And, you know, they are like the, you know, their brain works differently than someone like mine is where there is no, there's no end for them. It always is like the media. They're always like, what's next? You know, how can I, how can I top what I just did? Which is a crazy and probably stressful way to live your life. Mm. It certainly sounds it. I think what you're doing sounds to me extremely successful. You talk about success. What you're doing is extremely successful. You're learning. And I always think learning, this whole podcast for me is a learning curve, but I think you're being a success is actually accepting that that's happened. And this is, you know, what I'm doing now. And yes, I am mm. successful at it. You're successful. You're successful in your job. You can't quite believe it. You're saying some of the time that they want to employ you and they want you to take on this role, but you're clearly very successful at it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you always find new challenges in life. And I think that's kind of the, maybe the, the takeaway lesson from all this is there's always something else, you know, I mean, for myself or Jonathan, for you, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, you and Bev have, you know, spent a life mm-hmm. of raising children and, and working and all that. And like, you're yeah. still choosing to start a podcast, you know, like you can always find something new to, to challenge yourself. And, and, you know, it's, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a crazy world. And I think humans as it's, em- it's embracing, yeah. isn't it? Well, I think as, as like a human embracing that change and that's what you've done and change is good. Yes. Yeah. As well. yeah. And we're constantly learning, you know, which is, which is crazy as, as humans to feel like, you know, we always have to do something more, something different, which is, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. Like there's, <laughs> yeah, it's hard to become content and just sit still. It is. You seem content, but as you say, sitting still isn't something you want to do. It has been absolutely fascinating talking to you, Ian. Thank you so much for giving us so much time. I've learned masses. We are going to be asking people if they've got any questions for you to send them in to us. So would it be possible to maybe in the new year sometime if you could come back and answer any questions people give us? Yeah, that'd be great. I'd be happy to to come back and do a uh, question and answer. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you, Ian. It has been enlightening talking to you and I will definitely start following your podcast. And it's been very interesting hearing some of the things you've said and I shall be looking out for them 
with Jonathan. I should, I did notice that he lay in bed this morning, so he obviously thinks it's his off season. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's okay uh, once in a while. Yeah, I look forward to speaking to you in the new year, Ian, as, as a new dad. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes, a baby in the background. It will be wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, baby in the background, no sleep. <laughs> you probably won't be coherent at all, and you're certainly never going to be sitting still ever again. Yeah, well, I'll, have, I'll probably have a whole <laughs> host of questions for you too on parenting. <laughs> Look forward to speaking to you again. It's been lovely to talk to you this morning. All right, thank you so much. Good Thanks. to see you, boss. You too, buddy. All right, see you guys. Thank you. Bye. Fascinating. Yeah, it was. I thought he was a lovely guy. And I really think, you know, he's embraced this change in his life, hasn't he? He's getting married, becoming a new dad, part of that small community that he lives in, being involved with the community, as well as doing that, you know, the cycling, which he loves. He seems to have it all together. That's that's what I meant when I said it to him. He seems to have the best of both worlds there now at the moment. He does seem to have it all together. And it was fascinating listening to him talk about he felt it was a loss of identity because he no longer saw himself as a pro athlete and it's clearly taken him quite a while to build up that new identity hasn't it it has yeah and I think you know he obviously struggled more than he's talked about because I think you kind of go through that he said didn't he after the crash you know he was in a in a pretty dark place wondering where his life was going to go what direction it would take and what he would do and how he would fill his days. But here he is now filling his days really well, isn't he? With something that he loves to do and new interests and new challenges and, and embracing them as well. And also, I think, I think it was interesting when he talked about the kind of risks that he's taking with regards to cycling now with the gravel racing. I think it takes a long time from my own point of view to regain that health confidence again. For me, you know, that cardiac confidence because you, you're always waiting for the next one or wondering when it's going to happen. And life is full of risks, isn't it? As we know, but it takes a long time to feel secure and well again, mentally, I think. Yeah. I can relate to that and I'm sure you can as well. I can. You have to live in the now. Each day is precious, isn't it? Exactly. Each day is very, very precious. And I think it was fascinating what he said about how he felt when we asked him about the crash and the impacts, as you said, he referred more. He said, oh, yes, there were physical aspects which people dealt with, but he felt it was more the emotional aspects, which were his biggest cloud, if you like, on the horizon, which I thought was interesting, different, if you like. And those are the parts you don't see, isn't it? Those are the the parts that are not visible. And that's where the lack of support is, I suppose, mm. which which he said he really had nothing in a sense. I wonder whether if he'd been with a bigger team, as he said to himself, whether there would have been more support. I really don't know enough about it. I think with sport, each sport, I think is very much seems to be left to mark their own homework with regards to health and safety and looking after their, their athletes, definitely. There is no minimum standard definition for head injuries or framework for reporting injuries is there or it's a very new thing isn't it I know it's very much in the news at the moment concussion I would love to find out more about concussion and the protocols he talked a little bit about the protocols there and how how do you go about making athletes safe and as an athlete how do you make sure you're safe on the bike and this is this is the professional side of it. I mean, at grassroots level, I mean, they don't track brain injuries. Apparently, they don't monitor long term impacts, you know, with concern. And, and that's concerning because there's sort of mass participation, isn't it there? So mm. 
that needs to be looked at. That's why I wondered whether, you know, what we could have asked him, I suppose, about any changes that he might like to see with regards to support for, for brain trauma, head trauma. Definitely. Within cycling. Definitely. I think, yeah, I think that's definitely something that we should bear in mind for next time. It will be wonderful to see him with his new baby at the beginning of the year. Oh, he's not going to know what's hit him. Definitely. It's um, no. a wonderful experience and I'm sure he's going to absolutely embrace it and love it. A baby boss. A baby boss. <laughs>